0: Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au Both ways, you got to love that. And then he cracked my back three places up the top, uh, in the middle, and down low. And then he got me to, he worked on my shoulder a little bit. And then he got me to sit on a, a seat. And once again, he cracked my neck a couple of times. And then he got out the little clicker on my collarbone. He went click, 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 and then click, click, click on the other one. And he got me to stand up. And the exercise I'd done when I first got there, he got me to repeat it. And this time I could lift both of my arms above my head, whereas before only my right one could go to about there. And so after about seven or eight minutes, I was like a new man. Um, The health check was complete and I felt much better. And before I left, I I stood before him and I said to him, how can you tell just by looking at me with my shirt on what's actually going on with my body? And so he explained to me that uh, he looked at the position of my shoulder and when I went to do the movement, he could see how it moved. And from that simple observation, he could diagnose what the issue was. And the reason I asked him that is I thought it would be good if I could understand what he's looking for so in future I can look in the mirror myself and realise whether it's time to go for another crack. And so that's what I did. Um, And so I've looked in the mirror since and I've got no idea what to really look for. But it was worth asking the question. As we look at the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians today, we're going to do a spiritual health check. But instead of looking into a physical mirror... We're going to look into the Word of God and what it reflects back to us will help diagnose what's going on in our hearts. Uh, are we being encouraged by what we read? Are we being challenged, rebuked, convicted? And from, based on what is reflected back to us, we can make the necessary adjustments empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life worthy of the Gospel. And so, before we get to our spiritual health check today, let me give you a bit of context uh, starting a new series, looking at a new letter. It's important to understand um, who the letter is being written to and who it's being written by. Now, it's very easy when you look at this passage in the first two verses to ascertain those two things. In verse 1, we read that it's written by Paul, Silas and Timothy. Most scholars say that it's most likely written by Paul because it's very consistent with his other writings with the support of these two men. When we skip down to verse 2, the very next verse, it then highlights the recipients of the letter. It was written to Uh, the Church of the Thessalonians. Now Thessalonica was a town in the northern part of modern Greece and it was the capital of a Roman province, a commercial centre situated on a major highway and so it was a very influential town. Paul and his companions Silas and Timothy had visited there on Paul's second missionary journey and some of both Jews and Greeks had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ while they were there and they'd given their heart to him Um, at the time and so because of that they planted a church. At the time of writing this letter, that church was still very small. It was likely to be meeting in a house somewhere, or maybe in a few different houses, and um, it was written by these guys, but the authors were actually known very well to the people that were receiving the letter. We know that from verse five. Paul makes the comment, "You know how we lived among you." And so they were very well known because they were the church planters who had originally planted the church, and then they'd moved on to plant more churches. And so this letter was written to this new church and to these recent converts in their faith. Now, we know that letters are written for many different reasons, don't we? When you go to the mailbox and you get out a big pile of letters, you can look at each letter and you know pretty much straight away whether it's good news or bad news, right? It's pretty clear by the logos on the envelope. For example, if you get a letter from Vic Rhodes, the police or the local council, it's usually not good news, is it? It's usually not, uh, you're not writing to say, well done with life. You're doing a great job. Thumbs up. Keep it up. That's usually not what the letter's about. In fact, when I get a letter from Vic Rhodes, uh, I don't get the family together. I don't say, guess what, guys? Vic Rhodes have written to us. Gather around. Let's open this together. Let's find out what good news they've got for us. I don't know about you, but when I get a Vic Rhodes letter, my heart stops for just a second. (laughs) And I start to pray. And I start to think, where did I miss that speed camera? Uh, Not that I would speed because I'm a pastor, but there's a lot of faulty cameras these days. So you never know your luck. And so I start to pray about what may be in that letter. And so straight away, by looking at it, I know it's not going to be good news. And it's a really um, sad thing, that I rejoice when it's Reggio. You know, I open up, It's like, yes, it's Reggio. I get to pay 550 bucks, but it's not a speeding fine. So that is really, really good news. And so you know straight away um, what a letter's going to be about. It's a little bit different when you get a personalized letter, isn't it? It's got handwriting on the front and it's got like a love heart and a little butterfly or something. And you look at the letter and you know there's a good chance that that's going to be good news. Someone writing to greet you, unless the council's being really cruel or Vic Rhodes is playing a cruel joke and you open up and they go, gotcha, you were speeding. Um, But usually that doesn't happen, right? And so you know by looking at the letter what the letter's going to be about. And when we look at scripture, we know that biblical letters are written for many different reasons. For example, when you turn to the book of Revelation, you'll see seven separate letters written to seven separate churches. To the church in Ephesus, the letter was written to tell them to return to their first love. Smyrna received a letter reminding them to be faithful even in persecution. To Pergamum, the letter was written to tell them to stop worshipping other gods and to stop being sexually immoral. That's a letter you don't want to receive from Australia Post. To Thyatira, they were told to stop idol worship. To the church in Sardis, The letter said that they look alive, but they're actually dead. That's not a great letter to receive either. To Philadelphia, they were encouraged to keep going and were commended for being faithful in trying circumstances. And to the church in Laodicea, they were famously accused of being lukewarm and warned to repent, otherwise God would vomit them out of their mouth, out of his mouth. And that was not with a smiley face or a love heart on that particular letter. But all the letters in the Bible were written at different times and for different reasons. As we look at this letter to the church in Thessalonica, we see that it was a letter with a primary reason to encourage these people in prayer and in perseverance, as they look forward to the promise of God. And I think the author is one of these young Christians to progress in their newfound faith, and therefore progress is the name of our new series. It doesn't take long in this letter to see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are happy with this church. They are a church that are doing well. They are healthy. They are growing in their faith. And the letter is to spur them on to continue down that track to continue to progress in their faith. If we look at verse 2, we see that Paul writes, we always thank God for all of you. And we continually mention you in our prayers. In verse 5, he says, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power of the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. In verse 6, it says, You've become imitators of us and of the Lord. In other words, their faith was genuine. For you welcomed this message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. They hadn't given up in the hard times, and yet they were still joyful in the midst of them. In verse 7, it says, You've become a model to all the believers. In Macedonia and Asia, they were role-modeling their faith to other people. And in verse 8, it says the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Asia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. And so their faith was so obvious that it had become missional. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so you look at these verses and you see these people were faithfully and patiently waiting for the Lord. And so, if you were to do a diagnostic church evaluation on this church in Thessalonica, they are an immature church in terms of age, but they have a deep and developing hope that's rooted in the gospel. And it's not only deep in their theological understanding, but it's also outflowing in their lives. This morning, we want to focus in on verse 3, which highlights three things that demonstrate they are living at the gospel in their lives... And it's articulated in three simple but beautiful statements. Now, I need to warn you before we read these out that these statements are very simple, but they're by no means easy to live. It's one thing to understand and to know the gospel. It's an entirely different thing, uh, even when in life is difficult, to live the gospel out. And in verse 5, it highlights that the only way these guys were living out the gospel is because the Holy Spirit had encountered their life and was empowering them to live for Christ even in their circumstances. But the truth is, we don't naturally gravitate to these through statements. You and I, like the church in Thessalonica, desperately need the Holy Spirit every day. We need to be filled over and over again, filled afresh by the power of the Holy Spirit to represent Christ in this way. And so today we're going to do a faith, hope, and love health check. Paul was, if Paul was here today, evaluating follow, I wonder how we would stack up in this health check. And so we're going to look at verse 3, and it will give us some things to consider this morning. Verse 3, we remember before our God and Father, first of all, your work produced by faith. Secondly, your labor prompted by love. And thirdly, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Three areas we're going to look at. The first one is their work produced by faith. Now, true faith is always something that's accompanied by works. Truth, faith, and works always go together. The book of James is one of my favorite books in the Bible because it's immensely practical for us. But it would be fair to say that over the years, it's also been a very controversial book uh, because of what James teaches on the subject of faith. In James 2, he says famously that faith without works Is dead. Faith without works is dead. This book is so controversial that some famous scholars and theologians have actually rejected it altogether. Uh, Martin Luther was an iconic and influential figure in the Protestant Reformation, and he passionately embraced Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. And that's a great thing to grab hold of. It's an important part of the Christian faith, and it's a good thing to do, and it's one of his great contributions to Reformed theology. But because he was so um, caught up on that and so consumed by that, he struggled to accept the book of James as a legitimate part of the canon of Scripture, and he relegated the book of James to secondary status. In other words, you know, it's got some good things to say, but when you stack it up to other letters, like the letter to the Romans, he saw it as something that was inferior, and it wasn't as theologically sound as the book of Romans. Um, He called it the Epistle of Straw. In other words, it was worth tearing out and burning in the fire. And so he didn't hold in high regard James' book at all. Now, it's difficult to argue with a theological giant. Uh, Here's Luke Williams in 2017 with a a fairly meagre Bible college degree. And then you've got Martin Luther, one of the greatest fathers of the faith we've ever seen, a guy that wrote many uh, volumes of work that have influenced our faith in profound ways. And so if you stack up Luther and Williams today, um, who would be smarter? Please don't answer that question. Um, But I will give you a hint, it's not me. He's much smarter than I am. He's got some great things to say, and he's shaped our lives in really profound ways. But I've got to say that I disagree with Luther on this point about James. And I think it's an unbalanced view, and I think that he underestimates the contribution that James makes to a more balanced view of faith and grace. For example, the Apostle Paul, who actually wrote the book of Romans, obviously preached grace. But he also lived a life of works. And so what James is saying is that any faith that is actually true faith is always active. It always outflows in our life. For these people Paul was writing to in Thessalonica, their work is produced by faith. The work's produced by faith. They're not trying to earn faith by their works, but they have put their faith in Jesus and now it's producing works. And it's important that we get the order right, because if we get the order wrong and our works are trying to earn a relationship with God, that's not even the gospel. And so it's incredibly important that we get the order right. Our works always flow from our faith in Christ. It's not work that produces faith, it's faith that produces works. And so once again, we see the faith of these people in this church is deeply rooted in a proper understanding of the gospel. I've got to say, I'm staggered. By How many Christians, even Christians who have been believers for decades, still seem to live their faith like they're accepted merely by what they do? We're not accepted by what we do. We can never make ourselves righteous. We can never earn a relationship with God. All of us fall short of the glory of God, and our only hope for salvation is putting our faith in Jesus. Because people try to earn a relationship with God, you often see people who serve year after year, but there's no joy attached to it because what they do is simply from a sense of duty or obligation designed to earn relationship with God rather than flowing from a relationship with God, and that's not the gospel. In fact, the exact opposite is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. We don't have to pray on a prayer mat five times a day at certain times. We don't have to knock on a certain amount of doors to try and earn our way to God. We don't have to meditate in a certain way. We don't have to do anything to earn a relationship with God apart from faith because our God's the only God who came down and did the work for us. Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That ransom, his death and resurrection, is what opened up the possibility for each of us to have relationship with him. And so when we accept what Christ has done for us, we should be so gripped by that, so overawed by his goodness, that the only appropriate response would be to lay our lives down for him and for others as an act of gratitude and worship, and to do it, with great joy, serving the one who has given everything for us and made it possible for us to be saved. And when you understand that, when you're gripped by that truth, what a privilege it is to serve God, that God has given everything for us. William Booth, the famous founder of the Salvation Army, and this will be dear to Paul and Jen's hearts as ex-salvos, he says, faith and work should travel side by side, step answering to step like the legs of men walking. First faith and then works, then faith again, and then works again, until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. So what he's saying is faith and works work like this. First, it's faith in Christ, and then we're so gripped by his love for us that we want to serve him, and so it's works. Faith works, faith works, faith works, faith works. That's the Christian journey. That's what God calls us to, to be loved by him and to love others. It's an incredibly exciting calling on each of our lives. As we look at these people, the first thing that Paul commends them for is that their faith produced works. And I want to encourage you today that our faith should produce works as well. The second thing he says is that their labor was prompted by love. Now, the word labor is not, you know, a sexy word. It's the Greek word kopos, and it means trouble, weariness, sweat, blood, hard toil. He says, your labor, your hard work is prompted by love. Last Sunday after church, we went to the footy to watch St. Kilda versus Richmond at the MCG. Don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I drove in with dad and we took Lenny and uh, we went to meet up with my brother and his, Lenny's cousins at the footy. And most of you would know, but some of you may not, that Lenny, our son, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes a year ago at Easter. Now, when I used to take him to the footy prior to diagnosis, this is what I used to take. This little backpack, and it had everything in it. It had my wallet, had all the essentials, all the things that are really important for the footy, and um, all in there, a little colouring book. And um, I would pack this bag for Lenny and I, and we'd head off to the footy, I'd put it on my shoulder, and I'd hardly even know it was there. And so that was what it was like um, pre-diagnosis. Post-diagnosis, this is what we take to the footy. Uh, our little Spider-Man case and it's full of all of his stuff, and so if I open it up, I'll show you what I take to the footy now uh, for Lenny when we go to watch St. Kilda. Inside this case, you'll find all the essentials. You'll find his jacket. You'll find his scarf. Isn't that cute? <laughs> and you'll find games, because St. Kilda games don't get boring, but just in case they did... Um, like last week's one did. Um, we take games, we take pencil cases, colouring books. I then take his lunchbox with all of his snacks and food. Um, I take the scales because we've got to measure all of his food and, and work out how many carbs are in each mouthful that he eats. So we've got to weigh it on the scales to try and work that out. Um, I take his finger prick bag and inside here it's got his finger pricker and it's got his little blood tester and his strips and um, jelly beans if he's too low, and so we pack all this stuff in, and then we get ourselves ready for the footy, and then we sort of, you know, zip it all up here, and we head off to the footy, and so last week, we went to East Malvern Station, and we jumped on the train, and we took the train into Richmond, and from there we walked to the mcg and it's a couple of k's it's over bridges and it's a it's a fairly decent walk and there were 75,000 people there so it was you know shoulder to shoulder and i hold Lenny's hand in one hand and then i hold the case in the other and it's got a handle on it which is really awesome for a 4 year old if you're anything above 4 it doesn't work and you keep smashing it into your ankles as i worked out last week and you're rammed up against people and so i just put that useless handle down and i grabbed the other handle and we carried it all the way to the mcg and it's a pretty good workout there's a bit of stuff in here and so a Times I had to stop and Lenny go over this side and then swap hands and walk for a little while here and why would I need a gym membership when I can just take this to the footy each weekend? It's a really great workout. But let me tell you, by the end of the day, I was pretty exhausted. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of labor. It was labor intensive and to be honest, labor, uh, Lenny's whole life is labor intensive. His finger has to be pricked at least 10 times a day. Every single mouthful of food needs to be measured to determine how many carbs it has. It has to be entered into his pump prior to eating. He needs to have emergency plans for kinder and school. We've not had a single night of uninterrupted sleep since he was diagnosed. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot of work. But if we had a time machine and we could go back five years ago and God would show us what was to come and say, hey, you've got a choice. That's how much labor is going to be involved with Lenny. What do you choose? Do you want to go ahead with having your son before he finishes the sentence? We would be saying absolutely in a heartbeat. It's a lot of labor, but it's a labor of love. We never, ever wake up in the morning going, oh, I've got to look after Lenny today. Oh, gee, I'm on the roster today. I better make sure I prick his finger and get some food for him and make sure he's not too high. Or low. Oh, gee, I wish I didn't have to do this. Never once has that ever entered our minds because it's a lot of labor but it's a labor of love. Today on Father's Day, we celebrate all of our dads, what they do and who they are. And it's a chance to stop and reflect and thank them for the way they love us. And Father's Day is a great day for many people, but for others, it's a really hard day. And maybe today your dad's passed away. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe perhaps your relationship's broken down. Maybe you never even knew him. And that's going to be incredibly hard. And I cannot relate to that because I've got an awesome dad who I'm so thankful for. But if that's you, today our prayers are with you and it's incredibly difficult. But I think one of the issues we have when it comes to fathers is that we see our Heavenly Father through the filter of our earthly dad. It doesn't matter how good your dad is, whether he's the best dad on earth or whether he's the most pathetic dad who's ever existed, that is not a good filter to see God with. Because God is the ultimate Father. He's the perfect Father. He'll never let you down. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He has given His own Son for you in the greatest labor of love we have ever seen at the cross. His love towards you is self sacrificial, it's unshakable, and it's unconditional in Christ. And when we encounter that love, it'll stir our hearts and it will bring us security and confidence in life changing ways because He's not just the author. Our faith, but he is love, and so as we look at the passage today, we see these three things faith, hope, and love faith that produces work, love that's prompted, uh, labor that's prompted by love, and endurance that's inspired by hope. But as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, the greatest of these is love. As we look at their labor, their hard work, their sweat, their tears, even in the midst of persecution. Paul commends them because their labor was prompted, inspired, recognized by love. God's love towards them, and now their love towards others as a result. That's the kind of love that God wants us to express. As much as we love our dads and our family and our friends, our love for Christ should be the number one love of our life, and when it is, it will help us to love people better than we would have if we didn't know Christ. He helps us to be the people that we're designed to be. And when we love that way, it's obvious to the world around us. It's obvious to everyone who meets us that there's something different about us. In verse 8, that was definitely true for these people. It says their faith is known to everyone. It's just obvious that love is radiating from all that they do, but more importantly, from who they are. You know the old saying that self-recommendation is no recommendation? Well, that's really true, but these people... Before they even had a chance to recommend themselves, everyone else around them was raving about them, reporting back to Paul all that they'd done. If you look at verse 8, it says, Therefore we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves, he's referring to their local community, Macedonia and Asia, they observe these people and they have reported back what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I've been so encouraged recently, uh, face-to-face with people and on social media, to hear reports about us coming back to us. Just this week, I met up with the mayor of the local area, and we were talking about our church property and had a meeting with him. And um, I said to him, Brett, you know our heart for the community. And he says, I do, I would I know. Uh, Just the other day, a lady at the council did a big presentation on the food van. I didn't even know it was happening. She She did a whole presentation on the food van. He said, I was blown away by the work you guys are doing and by the impact you're having. As I get on social media, I've seen comments on the work we've done with starter packs. I've been seeing people raving about the Blessed Collective food van. I've seen them mentioning our work at Officer Secondary College. And it's great to be recommended for what we do. But the greatest comments have been the ones that reflect who we are. They're the ones that really warm my heart. People have said that we're beautiful people. I think they were mainly referring to me, but by (laughs) extension, you as well. They said that we're people that are full of love and compassion. One guy said, I don't think I'd still be alive if it wasn't for these people. Others have said that they're patient and kind. And really, they're just expressing what they are seeing. And what they are seeing is Christ in us. And it's him ...who prompts our labour through love. A couple of weeks ago we were at a conference, Dave and and I... ...with Geneva Push, a church planning network... ...and the guy that was speaking was talking about the difference... ...between being an input person and an output person. An input person and an output person. An input person is someone who focuses on the input... ...but an output person is more focused and concerned about the end results. Let me explain the difference with a personal and a practical example... At the food van each week, we work with a lot of volunteers. And when I go to set up at Burke Park at four o'clock on a Tuesday or a Thursday, as soon as I open the truck doors, I can tell you immediately whether the last person who packed the truck was an input or an output person. Straight away, I can tell you. An input person is someone who will fulfill the roster. They will tick the box. They will do their duty. At the end of the night, they're like cold and miserable. It's like, come on, let's just get out of here. And from about five meters away, they just chuck everything in the truck. And and it's just shattered everywhere in there. And and it's just a big mess. And so as soon as I open the doors, I can tell you whether it was an input person or an output person. If it was an input person, I will know. Because the $1,200 barbecue was on its side, smashed on the ground with the seats off. Uh, with the legs off it, and and I'll tell you that the clothes rack hasn't been secured, so there's clothes absolutely everywhere. Uh, The tubs aren't back and they're clearly labelled spots. The ones from up the top haven't been strapped in, so they're smashed all over the ground. And, And I can tell you straight away that an input person has packed that truck. But on the upside, they fulfilled the roster. Good news. But the difference with an output person is really quite profound. And once again, you can tell immediately when you open the doors Because the output person says to themselves, how can I do this the best possible way so that the next person who comes to set up, they will open up the doors and it will be a great joy to them. That's an output person. As soon as I open the door, I can tell you the difference. The barbecue's firmly strapped in. The tubs have been strapped up top. The clothes rack's been secured. Everything's ready to go and I just save 20 minutes. And I say, thank you, Lord, for output people. There's a big difference between input and output. And the difference is this, that the output person doesn't just see it as labour. They see it as a labor prompted by love. A lot of people want to love as long as there's no labor involved. A lot of people want to love as long as it's easy because for many people, love is nothing more than an ideal. A lot of people say, I want to serve at the van, and they come down one week and they go, Oh, it's a bit cold down here. Uh, no, I don't think I'll continue with the van anymore. It's just too hard. And we know it's hard because the homeless people who don't have a house to go to and a, 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 you know, a comfy doona and a warm bed and all that, That's why we're there. (laughs) We're to help those people who struggle with it on the streets every day. And so we know that it's hard. But a lot of people want to love because it sounds nice and they'll feel good as long as it's not hard or as long as it doesn't involve labor. But we know that love comes from God. We know that God is love. And when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, when you fix your eyes on Jesus dying on the cross, in your place. It won't take long to realize that love is more than an airy, fairy, fuzzy, warm feeling, but it actually takes action. On the cross, we see Jesus there hanging in our place. And I'm so grateful that he didn't just think nice thoughts about me. I'm so grateful that he followed through to the cross. I'm so grateful he didn't get there and go, hang on, this is more difficult than I expected. Quick, get the nails out. I'm coming down. Someone else can do it. I'm so glad Jesus didn't love like that. Jesus loved sacrificially. It was a labor for love. He endured the cross, fixing his eyes on what the future held for you and me. So grateful that he loved us that way. And as I reflect on his incredible love, when I labor, I want to reflect his heart. And so my labor, I want it to be prompted, not by obligation. I want it to be prompted by love. And so when I come to serve, I'm not moping in. On the roster again. I was on two weeks ago. That's twice this month. I guess I'll do it. Welcome. Come in. I'm just going to mope around. I'm not happy about it. All this serving. I'm worn out. I'm tired. Don't you know what I've been doing? I'm not going to mope in around. It's not labor. It's a labor of love. It might be cold and miserable at the van. I might be tired and grumpy on a Sunday morning at church. But I'm going to come in, and I encourage you too as well, to come in ready to go, not because I feel like it, but because I understand who I'm serving. I'm going to labor with love, not because we're on a roster, but because Jesus first loved us. And so the attitude is completely changed. I'm not thinking input, I'm thinking output. And so I want today in church to be the best day we've ever had here in church. I pray and hope that the worship is something that is worthy and fitting for the king. I hope today that our visitors are welcome, that no one will be sitting by themselves at the end of this service thinking no one's going to talk to me. I pray that they would feel the love of Christ. My prayer is that every person today would be encouraged and built up in their faith, that you would leave this place closer to Jesus than when you came. I pray that every visitor at the food van would be loved, perhaps like they've never been loved before. I pray that every volunteer, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, I pray that it would be the most positive volunteering experience of their life. Why? Because I want our labor to be a labor that reflects Christ's love because when people see that, they'll be attracted to him working through us. And so let me say something that's very risky today. If you are serving in this church and you hate it, if you're serving in this church because you're obligated, because you feel pressure to be on a roster, can I plead with you for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the king that you serve, for the sake of yourself, for the sake of those that you supposedly serve, to no longer serve in that way? Can I plead with you to instead go back to the word of God, to go back to prayer, to once again encounter the love of Christ at the cross to the point that you are so overwhelmed that it can't but help but flow out from you? And when you get to that point where you've had a fresh revelation of what Christ has done, then come back and serve from that love. That your labor would be prompted by love. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with just a little part of your heart. (laughs) Only three people understood that. You need to learn your Bibles more. (laughs) Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's a humble thought, isn't it? I'm not down serving at the food van because Pastor Luke said I should, or because someone on the kitchen wanted me to join the roster. No, no, you're serving Christ. He's here today. And if you could see him standing right in front of you, how would that influence the way you serve? I reckon there'd be a lot more joy. Not that there isn't. You guys are a very joyful bunch of people. But it's a good reminder, isn't it? As we're doing a health check to examine our heart and see, is our faith producing works and is our labor prompted by love? Don't be an input person. Be an output person. Don't just labor, but labor prompted by love. And so their faith produced works, their labor was prompted by love, and finally their endurance was inspired by hope. A couple of years ago, I did the run for the kids. It was a 15 and 15.5K run. A young guy we knew um, was struggling in his health. He passed away sadly, but we went there to support the family and to raise awareness for the condition he was struggling with. And it would be fair to say that I got off to a fast start that day. I didn't really pace myself very well, and so I was passing people in the hundreds feeling pretty good about it, only for many of them to pass me later in the waste, which was a little bit embarrassing. But we went through the tunnel, domain tunnel. We went over the Balti Bridge and a few people said, gee, it must be a beautiful view up on the Balti Bridge. And I said, I wouldn't have a clue. I don't remember it. Uh, <laughs> I could be running through the Garden of Eden. I wouldn't enjoy it if it accompanied with running. You know, <laughs> Running, let me just clear it up. There's no such thing as a fun run. That is just an absolute oxymoron. If you want fun, don't run. Uh, they go, they rhyme, but they don't belong in the same sentence. And so don't stuff up your day running, just walk and enjoy the view. (laughs) And I wish I had of that day. But I went on this run and I remember at the 13K mark, I had blisters on top of blisters on my toes. They were rubbing together, I've got pretty mongy sort of toes. And so rubbing together like this and I got to the first aid guy and I quickly whipped off my shoes and socks and I put band-aids around all my toes and then I kept running. I wanted to finish this 15 and a half Ks. And I remember that last two Ks, um, I tell you, it felt like eternity but not in the good sense. I was running along and I thought, I must be on a treadmill because I I just don't (laughs) seem to be getting anywhere. I I can't see the finish line and I'm really feeling like giving up. And just as I was about to give up in the distance around a corner, I saw the finish line and I was inspired by hope that this is one day going to finish. Maybe not today, but one day (laughs) I will get there. And so I kept going. I kept running because I'd seen the finish line. I was inspired by hope. And when I got to the final 300 metres, let me tell you, I sprinted. And some of those suckers that had passed me, I passed them again. I went, yes, as I went over the finish line. And they looked at me like, it's not a race. And I'm like, I know, but I beat you. Um, <laughs> but the only reason I could sprint when I thought that I'd hit the wall 2Ks early is because I saw the finish line. I was inspired by hope. In pain, yes but inspired, not unlike these people in Thessalonica, in pain, but inspired. The Apostle Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind those last 13 Ks, I press on to what Christ has called me heavenward, the prize that he's called for me to receive. I press on towards the end goal. Verse 6 of this passage, it says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. We know from Ephesians chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit is a deposit given to us at the point of salvation, guaranteeing our future inheritance. And so no matter what we go through in life, physical suffering, financial loss, persecution, even death, in the midst of it, we can have Holy spirit produce joy and we can be inspired by hope because we lift our eyes above our circumstances knowing what God has promised us is guaranteed. That's the power of the gospel. This is a life that God has purchased for us with his own blood. Life where our work is produced by faith, our labour is prompted by love, and our endurance is inspired by hope as we joyfully wait for Jesus' return. Today I want you to hold up God's word as a mirror in these three areas of your life. As it reflects back to you, I encourage you to consider your life, to do a faith hope and love, spiritual health check, and to allow the Holy Spirit to convict, to rebuke, to encourage, and to inspire you to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, we are just so grateful to you, and we remember today profoundly on Father's Day the sacrifice you made by sending your Son to die on the cross for us. Lord, we are eternally grateful that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be in relationship with you, not only in this life, through all of our circumstances, but for all eternity. Lord, what a joy that is. And from that revelation of what you've done for us, Lord, I pray that our work would be produced by faith. Lord, I pray that our labor would be prompted by love. And finally, Lord, I trust that our endurance would be inspired by hope. Lord, fill us afresh today with your Holy Spirit. Help us to live for you in every area of our lives that we would bring honour and glory to your name, and that we would have an impact in the lives of people in our community and beyond. This is our heart's desire, Lord. We pray it with all of our hearts today, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.